Welcome to Catastropod, a podcast about the apocalypse in myth and media, but mostly media. Today I'm here with Jane Rosson. Tell me a little bit about yourself, Jane. Hello, Marley. I'm Jane. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I am a writer, and most of what I write has something to do with the environment in one way or another. I've written a couple of novels and a novella, a bunch of short stories, and also a non-fiction book called The Handbook, Surviving and Living with Climate Change, which is a personal guide to adapting to climate change, to the effects of climate change. Which is what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I just finished it. It's great. Thank you. It's very handy. It's got, it's an extremely practical guide, especially for Australians. Um, and yeah, I was surprised at how incredibly readable it was and how I just like powered through it. Um, so... The handbook, Surviving and Living with Climate Change, is exactly what it says it is, a guide for how humanity can make it through environmental upheaval as individuals and communities. What made you decide to write this book? Well, I should say that I co-wrote it. That's right. That is important. uh, With James Whitmore, who at the time that we started writing it was my assistant editor at The Conversation, where I was. The Conversation is an online news service that publishes stories about current events and current affairs written by academics and edited by journalists. So James and I were both working there on the environment and energy section of the website. And that meant that we were every day getting loads and loads of articles from academics about things to do with climate change, as well as many other environmental issues. And reading over and over again about the predicted effects of climate change, the current effects of climate change, reading a lot about the psychology of climate change denial, um, and obviously a great deal about the science of climate change. And both of us felt like the thing that was missing was discussion of what are we going to do about the effects of climate change. There was a lot of discussion out there at the time about what do we do to mitigate against climate change? How do we reduce our emissions? What do we do to make this less of a big deal? Or to stop this from happening, but we're beyond that point now. Absolutely, and we felt like while most scientists who wrote for us were very aware of that, that that we're well beyond the point of stopping this, that we're locked into a certain degree of climate change, that there are all kinds of physical effects of climate change that we are not going to be able to avoid anymore, that that was not something sort of generally understood or accepted. Or talked about. Or talked about, even among people who consider themselves believers, a really daft word for this (laughs) thing, in climate change. Um, Yeah, so many people are like, yeah, yeah, climate change is absolutely real. It's a thing that's happening, but they don't think about what that might mean for them in their everyday life. So we wanted to write something that would give practical suggestions for that, readable suggestions for that, and by doing that, try to raise awareness that this is a thing, this is a real thing, and it, it could happen to you, it could very easily happen to you. It most likely will happen yeah. to you. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously, we're going to see effects of climate change in our lifetimes and definitely in um, other people's children's lifetimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> other people's children. <laughs> um, so, do you believe that climate change is apocalyptic? I don't know that I do. When I think about apocalypses, and maybe it's just my age, you know, I, I was born at the very end of the 60s, and so for me, the original apocalypse was nuclear war. Mm-hmm. Um, and nuclear war is so 
all-encompassing and absolute and very much at a single point in time. I mean, you know, the, the way you would imagine it is bombs being dropped all over the world within the span of two days. And Here is the point before and here is the point after. Absolutely. It's a singular event. It's a singular event. Um, climate change is a rolling catastrophe, a recurring catastrophe. In some places, its effects will be smaller. In some places, much larger. The effects will depend on the resources you have available to you, what kind of person you are. Your neighbour might be more badly affected by it than you are, even though the physical effects on both of you are the same, depending on who you are. Um, obviously, it will depend on what species you are, how it affects you. So it, apocalypse doesn't seem like quite the right word for it. And also, I don't think there's a point at which you can say the thing has stopped and mm. now we're living after it. Yep. But we we have no plan in place to ever make this stop. Well, it's going to be a continuing disaster. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so how did you go about researching the book, especially when the subject matter is so broad and there's so many different aspects to cover? We started in a pretty strong position. You know, James and I had both been working on environmental issues and climate change issues and working with experts for about two and a half years, I think, when mm -hmm. we started writing this book. So we had a bunch of background and sort of a good way to set up the structure and scale of the book at that time. We had a fair idea what would be possible and what wouldn't. And we also had a contract. Um, oh, nice. So we had a year to research and write it. <laughs> a deadline is always a good thing. Yeah, exactly. And it was a very clear deadline. We both had full-time jobs. So we had to limit the scope. And your book came out through Transit Lounge? That's correct. Yes. Thought, yes. We should just mention that there. That's right. Uh, the same uh, publisher that publishes my fiction. Um, so, yeah, we we knew that, A, we didn't have any money to do <laughs> this thing. <laughs> I mean, ad advances are not a big thing in the world of small press publishing. Mm -hmm. uh, know all about that. Yeah, and we had very little time. So we decided to restrict ourselves to speaking to experts who we already knew, yep. um, who would be willing to talk to us, we knew about them, and to people that they introduced us to to uh, doing a lot of reading online and off and a very few visits to places that we thought it was worth going to see in real life and, and meeting people outside that sort of academic circle, which we which were where we had our strongest links. So um, I went to South Australia, for example. I had to go for another reason, but I made a bit of a side trip to go and see a guy who'd been building an earthship and talk to him about uh, sustainable architecture and sustainable building. Uh, James made a couple of trips to talk to people who were doing their own food growing, which was something that he wrote quite a lot mm -hmm. about for us. But, you know, we had some ambitions that we weren't able to realise. James really wanted to go and spend several plus 45 degree days somewhere in the desert and see what that actually feels like so he could write about, mm -hmm. you know, trying to be a construction worker in the time of climate change. Um, but sadly, our budget and timeline did not extend to that. Maybe in future editions. Oftentimes that is the case. Yeah. And there, there were a few things also that we really wanted to cover and didn't. And I think we both kind of regret that we didn't get to. One of which was Indigenous learnings from Indigenous societies on what we could do to adapt to climate change. And the other one was, what about work and money? What are the mm. jobs that are going to still be around? What should you be doing with your finances to deal with this? But what we ran out of time. What? Uh, paths of study should we be taking um, yeah. in regards to what jobs we could have in the future? Exactly, mm. yes. Um, so what do you think will be the most difficult consequence of climate change? 
on a global as well as individual level? That's a really broad question, so like, feel free to answer it however you'd like. Sure. Yeah. I, know uh, you, I noticed you've got some notes there. Yeah, I did. This one I made a few notes on um, because I really don't know the answer. <laughs> That's the short version is, who knows? Um, I think for... For a lot of people who are middle class and reasonably well off and living in developed countries, the most difficult thing, if you give a damn about any of this, of course, will be the despair and the frustration of knowing that there is so much that we could be doing that would be difficult, but not that difficult. And we could solve this. We could, you know, reasonably easily solve this if we decided to do so. And seeing how we're just not doing that and in fact seem to be stepping further and further away from attempting to solve it. Like um, for instance with the um, rollback of the um, uh, carbon trading scheme? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Emissions, so you know, yeah. so, you know we, we took a few steps to try and do an extremely minimal effort to do something about this and now we don't even have that anymore. Um, so seeing that happening and seeing how I guess how government makes all kinds of decisions that never even seem to consider that the world is changing, that this is a thing that's happening to us, that just blithely carry on as though nothing will ever change, is is kind of terrifying. Um, definitely. So that's, you know, for us. Some of us will also be hit by the physical effects of climate change. Some of us will be in bushfires. Some of us will be in floods. Um, we're all likely to be affected by droughts. We'll definitely all be affected by heat waves. Mm. Um, but I think for, for other parts of the world that will be more acute, not necessarily because the physical effects are more acute. I mean, Australia is going to be on the forefront of some of that stuff, but because they have less resources, they have governments who are less involved in their lives and less prepared to prop them up than ours. So, you know, the compounding effect of, of repeated floods and fires, the loss of fisheries around the world, I think are going to really hit a lot of people really, really hard, particularly if they're already really close to the edge of disaster. Um, and of course, you know, for all the other species on Earth that aren't domestic animals or us, they'll probably just stop existing. So, you know, that'll be pretty rough for them. But they'll be dead. They won't know. They, they won't know. Yeah. No. Wow, it's it's really light subject matter. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for asking me yeah, to talk right. about this. <laughs> Why did I decide to make a podcast on such a depressing subject? I don't know. Um, why do you think there's so much denial? What? Why do you think that people, governments, are just ignoring this problem and hoping that it'll go away? That's a really good question, and I really do not know the answer to it. Um, I mean, I know I have some thoughts about it, but I'm I'm not sure how true they are. Mm. Um, I think that obviously the one of the easiest ways to win votes is to tell everyone, "Don't worry, you don't have to change anything. Your life is fine. Um, continue on as you are. Mm. We think you're doing great." Mm. Um, so presenting a situation where you say we we want to change the status quo um, is is always going to be a, a bit of a hard sell. I think the thing is though that people don't generally talk about how the status quo is going to change anyway. Yeah, regardless and of whether we like exactly, it or not. Yeah. <laughs> and so what are you going to do to change to keep up with that? So, you know, it's a big hard problem. It's longer than electoral cycles. 
So it's there's no really compelling reason for politicians to do this other than clearly it's the right thing to do, but, you know, that's not a big part of politics. No, definitely not. And, of course, there's the sort of more sinister reasons for doing it. You know, there are people who are religious who are in politics who believe that, you know, if this is what God wants for us, then we should definitely go ahead with that and we should not get in the way of what God wants. Um, the apocalypse is a great thing, then all the righteous people get to go to heaven. Yay! Fun times! Yeah. Um, and, of course, there's the influence of money from big mining, which we've seen is really apparent in Australia. Yeah, um, most definitely. Yeah, and, and from fossil fuel industries. Um, so all of that definitely affects how it plays out. Well, that's the thing with climate change and, I guess, climate change denialism is that there are so many different factors all coming into play. And if it was just a fact of we do this, things will get better, or we do this and we might survive – then it would be simple. But because there's so much, so many different factors and so much money and lobbyists and governments and election cycles and um, all of the that economy, yeah. it all comes into the fact that politicians don't want to, to change the status quo. And I think asking people to change their lives when they're used to being as comfortable as they are um, is something that they're not prepared to do. And changing their lives is something that a lot of people aren't prepared to do. And it's also... It's so rarely presented as you could make changes to your life and we could make changes to Australian society that will make everything better. Mm. Uh, it's, it's generally presented even by people who would like people to change their lives as being kind of a hassle, but yeah. for a good reason, Yeah, uh, which is still not a super compelling message. Or dismissed as some kind of hippie shit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There is definitely a big ideological edge to this uh, for a lot of conservative politicians and mainstream Australians, which is... Yeah, who wants to get involved in that hippie environmental bullshit? It's basically communism, and you know <laughs> that's that's not my deal, man. You yeah, know? definitely. Um, so I really appreciated the practical suggestions in the book for living in the climate change world, um, but you also cover how to mentally prepare for it and emotionally deal with disaster. Um, what do you think is the most important factor when it comes to surviving, the practical or the emotional? I guess it depends what is going to happen to you, yeah. which is a little unpredictable. Yeah. But I think um, the emotional is something you will definitely need to call on, and you probably already are if you're paying much attention to this. Um, so being emotionally prepared to deal with with anxiety about climate change, with grief about loss. the things we're losing, yeah. with loss, with the fact that the world is changing around you and, and it feels like there's nothing you can do to stop it, yeah, you're, you're going to have to deal with that. So, so that emotional stuff is is important every day. The practical stuff, it's hard to know if it's going to happen to you. If you're going to yeah. be someone whose house is going to burn down in a bushfire, and you're going to need to be prepared. But we talk quite a lot in the book about towards the beginning of the book about how to evaluate your risk of various things, how to try and narrow down the stuff that that it is probably most practical for you to concentrate on and to figure out, you know, whether you want to change your life to avoid those risks or whether you want to keep facing those risks and prepare yourself better to deal with them. Mm. So it's kind of, it's a matrix, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I guess like the problem, the, um, the solutions are manifold they and are. come from a lot of directions. And um, it, it depends also, I think, the kind of person you are. I mean, there are a lot of people who are happy to just go, I'll just deal with it when it happens and I'd rather... I'll think about 
I'll yeah. leave that for future Marley to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and there are people like me who are like, if I have all the information, I will absolutely be prepared to deal with this and then I won't have to worry about it anymore. And I don't think either of those approaches is more or less valid than the other. So, yeah. um, There are a lot of really amazing resources that you link to in the book, um, which I believe people are going to find incredibly. It's, it's not just a book that talks theories. It's a book that talks practicalities, which... Um, wasn't exactly what I was expecting, but you do direct people to exactly where they can look um, to assess their own risk, and um, specifically within Australia. Um, but I think that obviously um, branching out into a global um, climate change survival guide would be something that would take a lot longer than a year to write. Yes, um, <laughs> <laughs> we did consider it, uh, yeah, but we we didn't have the resources to do that. So. Um. <laughs> What have you done? What steps have you taken to prepare yourself for climate change? Well, Marley, I have put external blinds on my house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and actually, they're extremely effective um, at keeping the house cooler in summer. Did you, because there are practical suggestions for um, looking for, oh, hello, cat. Hi. <laughs> there are practical suggestions for looking for places to live um, that will uh, factor into factor in heat waves and uh, reduced electricity uh, usage. Did you look into that when you were looking for a place to live? Not when we were looking for this place to live where we currently live, uh, but it's since I've been living here that I started doing the research for and wrote this book and started thinking more seriously about all of these things. And this is, I guess, a little parable about how it's actually impossible to prepare for climate change, uh, which is that we did a bunch of research and we decided that for a lot of reasons, one of which was climate change, that we would like to move to Tasmania eventually. Um, so we made a plan and we bought a little place down there and we rented it out and we were going to sell our house in Victoria, where we are in Melbourne, and uh, use the profits from that to pay off our mortgages and then we would be able to live a more flexible life where we could be better prepared for things like climate change and also do more writing anyway. <laughs> it turns out <coughs> our house in Melbourne is unsaleable and so that whole plan has collapsed. Oh, <laughs> no. But in some ways I feel like that's kind of how it is in, in a world that is more chaotic, um, in a world where we can't... You know, we can make these general predictions about what climate change will be, drier in some places, wetter in others, definitely hotter. Uh, but we can't make specific predictions about what will happen to specific places or specific people. And however much you prepare, you probab something's probably going to trip you up at some point. The best thing would be if we s tried to stop having climate change mm -hmm. and then we could get on with our lives. And that would be heaps better. It would be. It yeah. would be, but it doesn't seem like it's something that's going to happen. Yeah. And there's that sense of uh, loss of control, which I think leads people to despair. Absolutely. Which then makes it harder to make any decisions or practical efforts and sort of like, well, no one else is bothering. Why do I bother? Absolutely. And particularly if you feel like you're inconveniencing, inconveniencing yourself in major ways to try and deal with this and you look around you and everybody else is blithely continuing on with drinking cocktails <laughs> and, you know, getting fancy jobs and stuff. You wonder, why am I doing this idiotic thing? But I think that is part of trying to plan for the future is the decisions can't just be about where might it be cooler and a little damper than here? I should move there. Uh, firstly, because 
predictions can often be wrong. For example, southern Tasmania has been drying up quite a lot over the last couple of years, mm -hmm. which wasn't necessarily expected. Okay. Um, so when you're trying to think about how, how will I live my life in a climate changed future, it's also really important to think about what will your social links be? What is it that you want to be doing with your time? How do you want to live a life that is still like rich and valuable to you and the people around you? It's not just about weather. It's not just about surviving. It's too. not just about surviving. You want to try living. and have a good life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, are you a prepper? You're a prepper, aren't you? Um, look, I guess in the sense that whenever I am making a major decision about my future, I try to think about how the world might be different to how it is now. Don't mm -hmm. assume things are going to stay the same way mm -hmm. that they are. And that I also try to think about the consequences of my actions. How might they make these things worse? How might they make things better? So in that sense, I guess I am. I'm like always preparing for the future, but not necessarily by saving cans of food or buying a gun or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, my preparation is more about trying to keep it front of mind that this is a real thing and that you should live your life as though it's a real thing, which is something that so many people, including me, really struggle with. Yeah. Oh, one thing that I noticed is um, as soon as I finished the book, I started to, and this is just one example, I started to um, look at the resources I was consuming and think about the consequences of that, uh, in particularly water. Um, and even a day after reading the book, I instituted or at least started to practice uh, some slightly better water-related habits. Um, what kind of... I believe that, that your book can sort of be... What's the word that I'm looking for? I'll edit this out. Um, so a lot of the su suggestions made in the book will be transferable to a, an apocalyptic scenario. Um, and, and I found that really interesting um, in regards to sort of what this podcast is about. Um, what do you think are your best tips for the apocalypse? Like what is really practical information that you think people sort of need to know? I think the thing that we kept coming back to when we were writing this, given the unpredictability of everything, given that you don't know what the physical effects of climate change will be on you, or, you know, let's call it an apocalypse, um, that the most important thing you can do is to have friends. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Is to have have people have a community. Have a community. Is to have people who care about whether you live or die, who'll look out for you if things go badly, who'll be there to support you when things go badly. Um, if they have like a wide range of useful skills <laughs> as well. That helps. That definitely helps. Mm -hmm. So have diverse friends is probably a good <laughs> idea. Like don't have all your friends be writers like some stupid people. Like me. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah, if you can, you know, maybe make friends with some Zeldas as well or something like that. But yeah, I think that is probably the thing that will best prepare you for any kind of physical or emotional disaster is having a community who can help you get through it. Well, I think sort of when I think about the definition of an apocalypse, I, I think of nuclear apocalypse and um, that kind of thing. But apocalyptic and sort of dystopian scenarios um, are really any change that drastically affects our way of life. Um, and climate change is going to be something like that. It's going to drastically change our way of life until it's unrecognisable. Um, we're going to have to consume less. Um, we're going to have to learn to live with less. 
Um, and I found sort of the tips that you gave in the book to be really like exciting. I felt the book had a really positive kind of um, message and feeling to it. We, we didn't want to take that approach, like I was saying earlier, of, look, this is going to be hard, but it's worth it. Because so many of the things that we kept coming up with, we felt like these are desirable results. It's desirable to be living in a stronger community with more friends. And, you know, while, while we talked about how the physical effects of climate change are unpredictable, that it's up to us how our society deals with those uh, and that, you know, having a society where wealth is distributed more evenly, where we care more about people on the margins or who are struggling, will help all of us get through this better. And for us, that that was definitely something we would like to work towards, even if climate change turns out to be completely imaginary. How great would it be to, to have a more equitable society? Exactly. And to use, I mean, we use so much we don't need to use, and we all know that we waste massive amounts of food, we waste massive amounts of water, so, you know, cutting back on most of those things is not a case of going without. It's a case of just, like, using the stuff you actually use. I feel like we've kind of gotten used to a glue of everything. And learning to live with less is probably a good thing. Well, certainly if it means you don't have to go to work as often, which it's I think is exactly. one of the benefits for me is the idea that, well, if I'm living... I can't figure out any way to magically get richer, but I can figure out a way to need fewer things mm -hmm. and and that automatically means I have a surplus of either time or money which I can devote to the things that I actually care about and how great would your life be if you could spend more time doing the things you really wanted to do and cared about doing mm. and changing your life to consume less and to need fewer things can help you do all of that I was going to say actually that is one of the other um one of the top tips for an apocalypse as <laughs> well I think is not being too attached to your stuff yes to, to let yourself, I mean, I look around my house here and I'm like, well, you got plenty of stuff actually. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the idea that, you know, if your house burns down, if your house is flooded, if you have to leave and go somewhere else, that not having a strong attachment to your things will make that so much more bearable for you. And that kind of plays into having a strong community because if you have a strong community and a lot of friends, then the material possessions, I think, would matter less. I think so too, and you can also share more things with other people. Mm. You know, you don't have to buy your own whippersnapper. You can borrow somebody else's. Well, I think that sort of the world that you've kind of described that we should sort of hope to attain is like a kinder, sort of friendlier world. I think so too. I guess I am inclined less towards individualism and more to living in a society and you know, mm. treating each other and treating other species with a lot more respect and caring than we do now and I would like to live in a world like that oh well that's really nice do you think that that climate change is going to be something that is going to be a doom and gloom scenario that it's only going to be kind of negative and our lives are only kind of going to get harder yeah, yeah. I do I do and I, I same yeah <laughs> and I think that's largely because of the politics of the world that we're living in and because of the way most countries are choosing to deal with the variety of crises that we're facing by becoming more authoritarian and more individualistic and more money-focused and less caring about people who are struggling, then all of that sets us up to have a situation of climate change that will be completely awful. Mm. I feel like the 
surge into individualism and the sort of recent rise of nationalism is something that's kind of only going to get worse as things get more and more difficult. Um, you see people today, today on this very day in Australia as we record this, uh, we're turning away refugees who are coming from places, like if you think of Syria, the, the situation in Syria began sort of, a lot of factors, but part of it was the drought. Yeah, I think it's, it's widely accepted that yeah. that was a climate change um, event. Exactly. Um, so we're sort of having this this thing where we're we're turning people away who are who are going through this, and that could happen to us. It yeah, absolutely could happen to us. I mean, yeah, Australia is is very precarious as far as uh, sea level rise goes. So much of our society is built along the coast and is affected by that. So many of the routes that we use to, to transport food around this country will be extremely adversely affected by sea level rise. I found some of your um, stats on uh, especially food security to be incredibly frightening. Um, and you think about the f even any made-up apocalyptic scenario, all of that information was, was really good to have. So uh, I've written a story called Starving to Death in Brunswick West, which is exactly about uh, that kind of situation where the food does run out in an urban area. And I love that story. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, I just basically wrote it because I was thinking about what would happen in a scenario like that with my flatmate and I based on what was in our cupboards and <laughs> we would starve to death. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, knowing that that kind of level of insecurity exists is really scary. And you think that how many days was it that food stockpiles I'm last for? I I'm terrible at numbers, but it's like three days for fresh, fresh produce and something like eight days for other dry, things. Yeah, yeah it's, um, it's, it's extremely neg negligible. Yes. It makes you realise that civilization is precarious. Yeah, and civilization is precarious because of the way that we've chosen to live. Mm. We, could, we could remove a lot of this, hmm, I've never said this word out loud before, precarity, is that a word? Let's make it a word. Okay, Yay. and or precariousness <laughs> by restructuring how our society works. Yeah. By, yeah, th all those things that we've talked about. Our, our huge focus on profit and capitalism is why we're in this situation. Pretty much blame capitalism for everything. Yeah, I sure. always do. Yeah. Yeah, I think that a lot of the problems are going to come from the fact that people don't want to make the investments now. Yes. Yeah, everyone is is hoping somebody else is going to do it. Yes, essentially. Yeah, and no one else wants. No one wants to deal with it. And no one else is. No, unfortunately, the one thing that I kind of found interesting and sort of made me think was the income disparity and the effects of climate change wreaking more havoc on those who have less. I found that to be really sad and also sort of inevitable that the less off amongst us are going to be the ones that suffer the most. And yeah, I even kind of related that back to myself coming from a working class background and being a renter and not having the ability to make those choices about where I live and how I consume things. Yeah, it made me sort of think about how people who are worse off than even I would be affected by that. Um, it's a scary thought and it's it reminds me of, is it not true that Silicon Valley tech bros are buying up property in New Zealand? That is absolutely true, yes. <gasps> yeah, they're buying up great swathes of land over there. Wow. Which, you know, when, when I was talking earlier about me buying a, a tiny little property in Tasmania, the size of a suburban block, it's, it is the, it's the same thing, just on a different scale. Yes. 
those of us who have the resources have these ways to get out. We thought we did anyway. Yeah. And and it's a it's an interesting ethical dilemma whether you take those opportunities and, you know, save yourself or or whether there's something else you should be doing. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't feel I don't have at all a, a clear conscience about the idea that I have used my relative privilege to find hopefully a way out. Yeah. So yeah. But you know, we talk quite a lot in the book about how climate change will be tougher for people who have fewer resources to fall back on and that a lot of us in Australia think, oh that's not me, but that the way that our society has been going over the last couple of decades are making more and more people those people and those people could quite easily be you, yeah. quite easily be a lot of us within Most the next few years. Most definitely. Well, I think about the majority of my friends having no safety net and any kind of precarious situation or any kind of disastrous situation will send a lot of them into really unenviable states. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and we've stopped providing welfare for people essentially we've stopped looking out for people in that situation mm. and we're like yeah you're just gonna have to fall back on your own devices yeah. good luck with that lift yourself up by your boots right? yeah <laughs> get on and with it i think that that kind of comes back to your whole idea of community if we sort of cared more about people then it would <laughs> there's a yeah. cat meowing <laughs> do you want me to stop the cat meowing no it's fine okay well, you can but no, i probably can't actually <laughs> I get that. So are you a fan of apocalyptic media? And, I, and if so, what are some of your favourite apocalyptic texts? I go, I go through phases, okay. definitely, of being like totally into uh, usually reading because reading is my main method of consumption of culture. It's your preferred drug. It is my preferred drug um, of reading apocalyptic texts and other times when I'm like, I have absolutely had enough of this. But, you know, an apocalyptic book is always a bigger thrill than a dystopian book for me. Mm -hmm. You know, dystopian books, you can learn a lot about things. And cons apocalyptic books are just a rush, essentially. <laughs> um, and I guess some of my favourites are uh, Ridley Walker um, by Russell Hoban, mm -hmm. um, set in a non-specified in time far future Britain after a non-specified major probably nuclear disaster where everything has gone back to a sort of Stone Age type culture yep. and, and the struggle of those people to try to uncover what it is that got them here. And there have also been some really great, I guess they're fan fictions of this, which are you know, now published novels. And Truck Song, which is an Australian book by Andrew McRae, which recreates the strange language and setting of Ridley Walker. It's got just bizarre language. But in a post-apocalyptic Australia where... Uh, a lot of the people in the story are trucks with artificial intelligence. Ooh. It's so good. And more recently, uh, Year of the Orphan mm. by, oh, what is Daniel's last name? Finlay. Thank you, by Daniel Finlay. Who I met at Supernova this he's year. such a nice last guy. Year? He is, he's lovely. Yeah. I've got his book. I haven't read it well, because I I'm a terrible person. Well, I can recommend it, but you should also read Ridley Walker at the same time because they work so beautifully together. Daniel is also really interested in post-apocalyptic language mm -hmm. and how people might speak in a culture that's been absolutely taken back to the very very basics and his again is set in an australia that is severely climate changed but also focuses on nuclear issues a lot i have a you know i've got a, a soft spot for a nuclear apocalypse <laughs> um, but yeah i also have a massive soft spot for for plague 
books. Me I too. Lo- I love a plague Me book. Me too. I love it much more than an environmental catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you know, The Stand is obviously a classic of this. Uh, I, I think The Passage would count as, as a plague book where, uh, you know, a disease has – Justin Cronin's book – a disease has been released upon the world and turned people into like horrible vampire zombie type right. creatures. The first book of the series is so good and the others are not <laughs> at all. But the first one is amazing. And I guess the movie Contagion as well, which yeah. I think about frequently whenever I get a cough or see someone coughing. I'm like, well, there's that patient zero then. Right. Yeah. I found myself sort of uh, changing some of my habits. Uh, after watching that movie, specifically when it came to touching my face. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Phone mites. I don't know why that stuck with me so much, that movie. Um, but uh, can I keep going? I have more. Oh, please I've do. got more. Tolson Whitehead's zombie novel, Zone One, mm-hmm. uh, set in New York, is great. I don't generally like zombie novels, but this is, I thought it was a really great post-apocalyptic zombie novel. Does it subvert the zombie genre? I feel like, well, you know, I, as someone who has not read widely in conventional zombie literature because I'm really scared of zombies, mm-hmm. uh, it, I would be hard pushed to say, but my feeling is yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I give it a go. It's pretty good. Obviously fairly literary because, you know, that's how I am. But perhaps less expectedly, I would also say books like Voices from Chernobyl mm-hmm. by Svetlana Alexovich, which is uh, an oral history of people who lived through and mostly lost relatives, other loved ones in the Chernobyl disaster is like a little capsule of what it is to actually be in a post-apocalyptic landscape Mm. and how it might affect you. It's incredible. And Well, I guess the, I mean, when you think about it, sort of what's apocalyptic is relative and there are people who it seems have lived through apocalypses. Uh, yeah. When you I think of, say, Indigenous Australia. Exactly. Claire um, Coleman is very good on this, on talking about how Australia is a, a dystopian, dystopian post-apocalyptic society. It just depends who you ask. Yep. And, you know, you choose not to ask Indigenous people generally. So Her yeah. fabulous book, Terminalia, yep. Yep. Um, came out last year. Yes, it did. And uh, I have not yet read it. I have it. Well, you should probably read it. Yeah. <laughs> I should do a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> a lot to do. <laughs> but There's yeah. a lot to read. <laughs> but but I think that is absolutely uh, a really important point. I was talking to a friend of mine who is a climate scientist but also uh, his family is from the developing world and you know I was talking about how oh, you know this terrible apocalypse is going to happen. He was like most of the world already lives in a dystopian society. Most of the world is already in post-apocalypse. You're just here in your little bubble going oh no what if there's an apocalypse? Yeah it already it's it's everywhere else grow up it's happened and it will continue to happen yeah and it goes on and on yeah it's just a fun fantasy for us here in our comfortable world most people are living with it yeah totally so there's a question that i like to ask everybody who comes onto my uh, podcast what would your job be in the post-apocalyptic wasteland uh james and i talked about this quite a lot when we were writing the (laughs) book and came to the conclusion that i in particular would make really good food yeah okay yeah (laughs) no no i don't mean cook food i would be food oh no (laughs) 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 because that's pretty much all my skill set qualifies me for and i'm getting a little bit plump now so maybe i'll be delicious Uh, (laughs) other than that i don't know it depends what kind of society it is if you can like make a living giving hugs i'm (laughs) quite good at hugs and presumably a lot of people will be traumatized and will need Mm, a hug most definitely they'll need like an ear to like 
listen to them exactly yeah. and, and then get a really i'm really good at hope so there's that I d- so yeah i imagine should i be allowed to live for whatever <laughs> reason that i will probably spend a lot of time knitting and maybe that'll be useful too i could knit things most for definitely people. but yeah i am useless I think I talked about this in one of the other podcasts, but there was a thing on Twitter recently about the knitters of the post-apocalypse. It's a it's a thing. It's like an when actual you, thing. When you see post-apocalyptic people in their knitted jumpers, like full of holes and stuff oh, like, like that. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Knitting is like one of the main ways you can make warm clothing and the knitters of the post-apocalypse. I mean, think about all of those nights around the fire. Absolutely. There's no, There's no electricity anymore. Of course you're going to be knitting. It'll be tricky to get wool no it won't (laughs) it'll be easy to get wool there are so many sheep wandering around in australia no problem getting wool (laughs) and also jumpers seem like an important part of post-apocalyptic fashion i'm thinking specifically here of the matrix which i don't know if that counts as post-apocalyptic but they had really good jumpers i would count it as post-apocalyptic because the world is destroyed yeah and they do have really great sweaters yeah so Um, good uh, the 100. I'm not sure if you've ever watched that, but they have some really great sweaters in that too. Some kind of, but but like like I said, full of holes. Yeah, full of right. holes. I yeah. think the knitters of the apocalypse. Yeah, and and that clearly, darners of the apocalypse mm. will be important. Mm. So yeah. lift your darning skills. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's Jane Rosson's tip to the apocalypse: is lift your darning skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but I think that that's kind of like I mean that feeds back into sort of not necessarily climate change, but like resource matters where like if people could actually learn to fix the things that they own we seem to have lost that ability within like one generation yeah i think there are so few people who know how to fix things anymore and there are so few things that are still fixable it's it's an amazing turnaround whoever whoever's idea it was to build that into to technology was a genius a capitalist genius (laughs) because yeah we i mean my dad can fix pretty much everything he's ever bought or owned but even he now is almost at the end of his resources and you know once he's gone I'm like there's gonna be no one in my family who knows how to fix fix a thing I don't have a single person in my family who can fix anything yeah so I think that that's probably like a skill that one does need for the apocalypse is learn how to fix some stuff absolutely yeah and there are some even some tips in the book about ways that people can alter not alter what's the word that I'm looking for adapt maybe yeah I don't how know, people can adapt their cars for and so there are guides online for there are absolutely so many guides i mean basically anything I, this slightly counters what i was just saying but basically anything that involves tinkering and technology there will be a youtube tutorial on it somewhere there will be a group of retired engineers somewhere who are totally into that thing and have made an instructable Abs- about how to do it absolutely um so yeah while you yourself may not be able to fix anything or know anyone who can fix anything there are people out there who are dedicating their lives to to because there are a lot of people who even though they don't like environmental ideas aren't that into social justice or anything just really like technology mm. and really love dedicating themselves to making things better and fixing things. and tinkering and tinkering and tinkering yeah so lift your tinkering skills lift your tinkering skills absolutely don't be afraid to give it a go get out the screwdriver <laughs> and just maybe turn the power off at the mains and then just <laughs> go for it <laughs> <laughs> well thank you jane for recording this podcast with me it's i really appreciate it and i really loved reading your book and it's kind of changed my attitudes about some stuff like I, i've always been sort of aware but i've been quite complacent and 
I, I believe it, probably even my water bill is going to thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as we do that, that's important. <laughs> yeah. So thank you, Jane. And thank um, you for having me. And I've loved having you here. And join me again next time for Catastropod. Pod fucking save us.